Today on Ag News Daily. How can we improve, improve infrastructure all the way from broadband access to roads and bridges and um, uh, waterways? And then finally, how can we improve the economic opportunities? Good afternoon and happy hump day from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And I guess it really technically isn't hump day this week, Delaney, because we have a short week because of Good Friday on Friday. So we're not going to have an Ag News Daily Podcast on Friday, folks. Sorry to let you down. I know that you just can't get enough of Delaney and I, but it's going to be a short week here at Ag News Daily. But Delaney, even though it is a short week, I'm very excited because today, of course, like I said, is hump day. It's Wednesday. And that means we get a new episode of the Fieldwork podcast. Now, we've been talking about this a little bit already because they are on their third season and we've been kind of hyping it up. And honestly, they deserve the hype. This season is all about sustainability with hosts Michelle Hora and Zach Johnson, who we've both had on the podcast before. And they just released their new episode today, and it's titled The Bleeding Edge, Families That Led the Conservation Charge in Washington County. Washington County, Iowa is where they're doing their special project this season. So folks, please go and check that out before you head into this long weekend. Hopefully folks will be able to have some time with their families, eat maybe some Easter hams or other foods that you enjoy this holiday season. But yeah, markets will be closed on Friday. And really, Ashton, I know you're starting to get more and more into watching the markets and seeing what they do. But uh, tomorrow's trade is going to be certainly interesting because today, post uh, USDA reports, we saw markets go limit up. Soybeans traded 70 cents higher today, corn up 25 cents today. So it was certainly an exciting day. It's going to be certainly interesting to see what the markets do as follow through action tomorrow, Ashton. But if I could here, I think since we're talking uh, reports, I'm going to go ahead and just jump into these numbers really quick, Ashton, if you don't mind. Yeah, go right ahead. Overall, the report was pretty friendly for acreage numbers. The total trade estimate was pegging corn acres at a 93.14. USDA came in and said, nope, we're just going to see 91.1 million acres planted. Soybeans were also lower. Average trade guess at 90.1 million acres. USDA said 87.6 million acres. And as you look at stockpiles, those were pretty much right in line with where trade analysts expected it to be. So not too surprising there, but yes, pretty significantly lower numbers when it came to acreage. And that certainly pushed markets higher today. It was a a fun day to watch markets uh, for sure, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I am going to be watching out for markets here in the future, especially because we might be seeing another shortage of labor supply, especially over in Europe. In fact, I just saw this notification come across my phone that France is entering their third national lockdown for four weeks because COVID-19 cases are once again surging over there. And I don't know how vaccine rollouts are working over there. I haven't really been paying attention, to be honest. But fruit and vegetable harvests are underway in Western Europe with seasonal workers gathering crops in top producer Spain. But costs are rising as farmers are fearing that this third wave of COVID 
might cause a repeat of 2020 damaging disruptions in labor supply. Harvests, of course, rely heavily on workers from Africa and Eastern Europe, but many couldn't travel this time last year because borders were closed in the first wave of the pandemic, and shortages of key goods appeared in supermarkets while prices rose as consumers hoarded these products. This surging of COVID cases in Europe is raising the risk of crop losses and adding to farmers' costs on everything from extra transport to keep workers socially distanced to buying protective gear for seasonal laborers. In fact, in Spain's northeastern Catalonia region, farmer Joseph Cabri said that he spent about 6,000 euros, which translates to $7,000 on masks and other protective equipment for just seven seasonal workers from West Africa working on his farm. So this could really be a big economic loss to farmers and economic loss to you know the supermarket industry. So it's going to be a little bit concerning if, you know, we do see a repeat of 2020 and honestly kind of um, upsets me because I definitely don't want there to be a repeat of 2020. Certainly not, Ashton. I don't think anybody does. But speaking of economic loss, GBS will be suffering necessarily economic loss, but they did agree to pay $20 million to settle a class action lawsuit for the conspiracy of price fixing starting back in 2009 until present. So this agreement is just the second eight-figure settlement that we've seen this prominent pork processor, beef processor face. And they'll also be paying an additional $24.5 million to resolve similar wholesaler claims. So we've now seen them step in here and agree to two different settlement options, settlement offers, I should say, and the litigation will continue with other processors who were not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not assigned, named, named in this, in this price fixing scandal. So Hormel Foods, Clemens Family, Seaboard, and Smithfield will also still have to make their way through this here, but JBS is at least part, part of the way through this scandal, it sounds like, but geez, that's a big price tag, Ashton. We're up to like, what, 44 and a half billion now? Million, million, not billion. I don't know. I'm not tallying the numbers, but it certainly is a lot. Is a lot. And Delaney, it's not every day that we have the same stories to talk about, but you stole one of mine today. And uh, luckily I have a backup piece. And this is my final piece of news to share for today. And it's concerning President Biden's announcement of a $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. And I talked about this plan some time ago, maybe a, a week or so ago, and how it had gotten criticism. But this plan is aimed to fuel funding for America's roads, water rate, waterways, broadband, and even the electric grid, which I'm sure Texas will be thankful for. And I think that it under, underwent a name change because it's now called the American Jobs Plan. And in a fact sheet released by the White House earlier this morning, the Biden administration says that it will help rebuild the nation's infrastructure, which will lead to an economic boom. But it's not just rebuilding infrastructure in mind with the plan, which was kind of some of where the criticism was coming from, because there are also initiatives the administration says will help fight climate change and advance racial equity. 
And I won't go into all of the highlights or the details because the list is is quite long. There's a lot of numbers and dollars involved, of course, especially when we're almost three trillion in this plan. So I, I'm going to release this article as part of our reading materials for the week in our Global Ag Network weekly newsletter, which is coming out a day early, folks. So be sure to check your mailboxes at 9.30 a.m. tomorrow if you want to read a little bit more about this infrastructure plan. Fantastic, Ashton. And I know that we're still kind of waiting to see. I've heard or read some speculation that we're probably going to receive another stimulus uh, check as well as not necessarily as part of this infrastructure plan, but it sounds like there's a lot of money to be doled out by the administration here in the following months to come. So folks, uh, be sure to tune in with Ag News Daily so you can stay on top of that news. We'll update you as it comes along. But Ashton, I tell you what, I don't have any other news for today. So should we chat markets? Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, like I mentioned, uh, grains had a limit up day today all across the board. And corn and soybeans, all cron- all 2021 corn contracts, I should say, closed 25 cents, which is the daily limit. Tomorrow, of course, they'll be trading with expanded limits. So we could see them trade even higher or adjust that back down to the downside. But May corn up 25 cents today to close at 564 and a quarter. The Dece limit up to close at 477 and a half. Soybeans today, the May contract limit up 70 cents higher to close at 14.36 and three quarters. The November limit up to close at 12.56 and a quarter. Chicago wheat higher today as well, with the May contract adding 16 and a quarter cents to close at 6.18. The July 16 cents higher to close at 6.15 and three quarters. Now, livestock had the adverse effect today. They suffered from these higher costs with uh, feeder cattle trading almost limit lower today, but. April live cattle unchanged today to close at 120.97 and a half. The June 67 and a half cents higher to close at 122.90. And in feeder cattle, not quite like I mentioned, limit lower, but April shedding 295 to close at 143.87 and a half. The May down $2.80 to close at 149.40. And in lean hogs, mixed trade today as the April contract added 12 and a half cents to close at 101.05 and a half. The May down 12 cents to close at 101.50 and rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. April 29 cents higher today to close at 17.46. The May of 43 cents to close at 17.99. Ashton, fill us in on who we're chatting with for today's interview. Today we are talking to Paul Schickler of Third Ag. Well, today we are talking to Paul Schickler, who is the owner and operator of Third Ag. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks. So, Paul, you have a pretty interesting background career-wise. I won't give away too many details. I'll let you kind of take the reins there. But why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience and talk a little bit more about that background? Okay, sure. Um, well, a bit unusual is I grew up in the Chicago area, uh, born and raised there and went to school there. But then I uh, moved to Des Moines, Iowa to go to Drake University and receive my undergraduate and graduate degree from, from Drake. Immediately upon graduation from undergraduate school, I started with, at that time, Pioneer Hybrid International. So I ended up spending uh, my entire career, 42 years, with, with Pioneer. The first half was in administrative areas, uh, finance, accounting, planning, and such. 
like the last 25 years, were was in commercial operations. First, uh, leading the international businesses of Pioneer. And then for the last 10 years, so from 2007 to 2017, I was uh, president of Pioneer. And then, of course, uh, during that period, we migrated into the merger with uh, Dow AgriSciences that ultimately resulted in the establishment of Corteva. Uh, since retirement, so now four years, I'm involved in basically two things. One is I work with a lot of uh, ag tech startups uh, to advance the science in agriculture. And then secondly, uh, a couple of not-for-profits, but those not-for-profits are also focused upon uh, agricultural issues, namely what can we do jointly and in partnership to improve the opportunities in rural America. So, Paul, like I mentioned, you're the owner and operator of Third Ag. I have a two-parter here. First, I want to know where you came up with this name and what it means. And then second of all, of course, I want to know a little bit more about what you're doing. So can you just go more in depth on what Third Ag is all about? Okay, that's a, that's a great question uh, regarding the name. Um, first of all, my full name is Paul Schickler III. Uh, so my father and grandfather both have Paul as their initial name. So that's a, a component. But then the the real uh, motivation for the third as part of my consulting business came to me um, thinking that I'm in my third part of my lifetime, you might say. You know, the first phase is going to school and growing up. The second phase is your work career. And then your third phase is thereafter. So I'm in that third phase. And then the Paul Schickler III was a neat uh, connection. And then simply third ag seemed to me to make some sense. So anyway, thanks for asking that question. Uh, I've only had two or three people um, ask me that uh, previously. Uh, so what am I doing? Uh, I work with um, a number of companies in ag technology, um, about five, uh, they have a common theme. Um, first of all, they, they are most notably startups. So they are um, all the way from early stage startups to later stage startups, but in ag technology. And they all have um, a central theme that I try to organize my thoughts and efforts around. And that is number one, how can we improve the value of the crops that we produce. We've done a good job historically in increasing volume or productivity, but I think uh, as we look to the future, the value of our crops uh, needs to be emphasized. So that's the first component. And then realistically, if you are going to improve the value, then you've got to have a method to trace that product from production to the end user or to certify in some fashion that it's been produced in a uh, method that meets the expectations of the distribution chain. So those are the two components that I focus on in the technologies or companies that I work with, value and traceability or certification. Um, and then like I mentioned, I'm also uh, working with some not-for-profits that are focused on uh, opportunities for rural America. And basically, you know, I, I think we all know <clears throat> over the years, um, 
there's been a significant rural to urban migration that has occurred and will continue to occur. Um, but it doesn't have to come with a loss of opportunity. So if I look at rural America, what I want to focus upon is how can we improve access, access to healthcare, education, and legal services. How can we improve infrastructure all the way from broadband access to roads and bridges and um, uh, waterways? And then finally, how can we improve the economic opportunity that rural America um, has in front of it uh, so that rural, uh, rural America can offer the same um, hope and future and, and a bright future in rural America as other parts of the United States. So, Paul, you've talked a little bit about these opportunities, and I was shared an article that you had actually written that's on LinkedIn, and I'll be sure to share that with our audience um, so they can dive a little bit more into kind of your thoughts and pick your brain a little bit more. But um, you talk about this societal shift and how how does this societal shift kind of deal with the opportunities kind of at hand for this next generation of agriculture? What is that societal shift mean for us? Yeah, what I think is fundamental is I think we've got two trends that are occurring and also converging at the same time. And the first is that that you just mentioned, the societal shifts. And you might even think that there's two components to this first converging trend um, or societal shifts. And the first component is how people are looking at food. Their personal beliefs um, are playing an increasingly more important role in the decisions they make about um, uh, how they're going to access food and the type of food they are going to buy. So in, in simple terms, it just comes down to what's in the food and how was the food produced. And clearly, you know, how it's produced, you know, goes the spectrum all the way from animal welfare and fair trade to things that are sustainably produced. And then what's in the food includes things like, um, you know, is there a high, an opportunity for higher level of protein? Uh, is there medicinal benefit? And then even, you know, I think there's a, 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 a clear movement towards more clean labels, easy to understand words, unless you might say artificial ingredients. So those are the uh, personal beliefs that are changing, um, just simply the attention to what is in the food and how that food has been produced. But then there's a second, like I said, component, and that is climate change. Um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago in agriculture, we tended to, you might say, shy away from talking about climate change as an issue that we needed to uh, face. Um, even with the fact that, you know, in my mind and many uh, others' minds, I would call farmers and ranchers some of the greatest environmentalists that there are. Because number one, they make their living, their opportunity off of the land. Uh, so they are great stewards of the land, but they also recognize that their future uh, depends upon being the appropriate steward of that land and other resources. So having said that, you know, that farmers and ranchers are 
great environmentalists, like I said, 10 years ago or so, we shied away from the discussion. But clearly, um, I think there's a lot more willingness to open up and address climate change, uh, both from a producer standpoint as well as an agribusiness standpoint, um, because not only is it in front of us and challenging us, but also uh, society, back to this converging trend, society is demanding that um, the world, all of us, uh, look at China, uh, climate change as a key issue. Um, even investors are looking at um, climate change or sustainability more and more as a way in which to make decisions around uh, the direction of their investment fund. Uh, ESG, um, the acronym, um, standing for Environment, Social, and Government Governance Issues, is playing an increasingly more important in investor decisions, and I think it will um, even become increasingly more important. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, like I said, we've got this one uh, trend of society being more interested in food and in climate, but then converging with that is the other shift, which is an economic one, uh, the economic dilemma of farmers and ranchers. Um, I don't think that we can look back upon the last decade or so and think that that decade has, um, has been full of economic opportunity of, for farmers and ranchers. Um, when I look at the economics, uh, basically, and I'll just use the broader word, agriculture, Agriculture has work, been working at break-even at best, and in many cases, um, less than break-even. And the reason for that is, uh, for the most part, we are in commodity markets. Those commodity prices have been relatively flat. We have also, also during that period of time, the typical um, factors of environmental influences, whether it be... Uh, droughts or floods or other kind of uh, factors. But then we e even have had added to that trade disputes that have, that have disrupted the opportunity for, for agriculture. So bottom line, uh, we've been in a decade of uh, very marginal economic opportunity for agriculture. And as a result, the government has stepped in um, from time to time with programs not only the overall and ongoing farm bill, but then you've also had uh, trade relief packages and pandemic packages to the point that even in today's um, situation of, like I said, break even, um, half of the income that a farmer receives comes from government support systems. And I don't think there is a farmer in the world uh, that wants to make money uh, by government payments as compared to making money from the market. Um, so you put all this together, and I think that if we bring technology um, aggressively to the agriculture and food opportunity, we can address these two converging things. One is address the societal shift of uh, interest around food and climate change, 
and secondly, improve the economic condition of the farmer by enabling them to be paid for value while still delivering the volume that the world depends upon. Paul, you make some really great points there, and I wish we had a little bit more time so we could dive into those a little bit more, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I just want to ask you one more question concerning the next generation of agriculturalists and leaders in the industry, because in your article that I mentioned earlier, you make some great points. And I think that this next generation, this Gen Z generation kind of gets a bad rap in a lot of ways, not just in the ag industry, but Um, you know, in other aspects of culture and society as well. But you make some great points about this next generation. So can you just touch on, you know, what you think that this next generation of agriculturalists is going to bring to the table and what we can do to, I guess, better assist them in coming into this industry? Right. Um, You know, so, so first of all, whatever we call the next generation, millennials or Gen Z, um, I, I think it is clear that these generations do have the interest in these issues. They have interest in food. They have interest in climate change. They have interest in sustainability. So we in agriculture or we in ag technology uh, are a potential solution to the interest that these generations have. Secondly, um, you know, when I go through all of what I just have and describe the opportunities for agriculture in rural America, technology is at the core of it. So whether it's environmental science, science, whether it's uh, regulatory, um, whether it's biology, agronomy, IT, finance, all of the disciplines that today are at the forefront of the overall economy have a direct um, link into these challenges that need to be addressed in agriculture and food. So the educational and career disciplines are perfectly transferable into ag and um, uh, and food issues. And then finally, I would also believe or propose that the, these generations, the, the current generations and future, also in the work that they do, in the education that they want to pursue, They want to do good. They want to deliver something for the higher purpose, the higher good. And there's not a better way to do that than uh, to help the agriculture and food system produce the necessary food and do it better than we have done in the past. Paul, I like how you say, you know, whatever we call this next generation, because I think I also kind of ride the line between millennial and Gen Z. So it's it's quite confusing, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) But Paul, thank you again so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk to us. And I just wish you and Third Ag the best of luck in your future endeavors. Okay, thanks very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Thanks again there to Paul for coming on and talking to us today. It's definitely interesting to think about the future of the agriculture industry. I mean, there are a few key points there that I think we definitely should be paying attention to. And I think that this was kind of a similar conversation that we had with Doug Johnson not too long ago on, you know, making those connections in the ag industry and what the future really holds. Absolutely. Ashton. we're going to be at 
staying on top of all of that and more on the podcast. So folks, be sure to tune in with us every day at agnewsdaily.com and on social media, follow along with us, see what we're tweeting and talking about. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Ash, and with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.